0: Hey, GeoTrackers, this is Dr. Hal, host of the GeoTrack podcast. Welcome to podcast episode number 71, which features a conversation with Tim Riker, the contrarian emergency manager. Tim's insights on how to mitigate losses from extreme weather and natural disasters will prove valuable for any professionals listening to this podcast who are involved in disaster mitigation. If you're new to the podcast, GeoTrack explores the world to learn about extreme weather and natural disasters the impacts of such events and what we can do to get out ahead of such disasters to reduce losses we want you to make better sense of the world around you so you can take steps to make yourself your family and your community more resilient well let's get into this conversation with tim Riker. although he's based in upstate new york his insights are very valuable to all of us everywhere Hey, GeoTrackers. Welcome to a new podcast. We're touching on emergency management today. This has been a favorite topic of our listeners. If you're just getting into the podcast and you want to hear as many as many podcasts as you can on that topic. Check out podcast episode number 50 with Brandy Mai and 54 with John Stewart. Today, we have a special guest, Tim Riker, who's a partner with Emergency Preparedness Solutions and vice chair for the International Public Safety Association. Tim, thank you so much for coming on the GeoTrek podcast.
1: Uh, excited to be here, Hal. I always like to talk about emergency management whenever I can. So.
0: Tim, drawing back on your many years of experience, how would you describe the state of emergency management in our current time? So like, what are we doing well? What could be improved? I mean, what's your perspective on that? Huh. Um, so I, I, I think you, you 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 plan on
1: mentioning it later uh, that I have the moniker of the, the contrarian emergency manager. Um, I, so I do tend to be pretty critical of, things in our profession. Um, and, and I'm by no means perfect. Uh, but I, I think there's a lot of things in our profession that that we kind of accept them as they are. Um, and, and just kind of try to move on from things and 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 you know, th- there are some things in the profession that trouble me. Uh, you know, preparedness is really such a strong Uh, aspect of emergency management and planning, creating emergency plans, disaster plans, whatever you want to call them, is really such a cornerstone of that. And we do it so incredibly poorly. Uh, It's just so often that I see really bad plans. I mean, plans that are not thoughtfully written, plans that are not um, collaboratively written, because we really need to have that perspective of a lot of different stakeholders to, to contribute to to a plan um and plans that aren't written to enough detail uh i so okay. often find that that plans are are at way too high of a level uh where they say hey we should do this thing very very big picture but they don't explain how they don't explain the details okay they don't explain who's responsible for things so that's that's a lot of what really concerns me in emergency management that's that's one of the big things um that said, we we have had, you know, we continue to have a good evolution of things. I, I think sure. that we are finding areas to improve upon. Um, things like uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. We have a long way to go. Uh, we're we're I, I won't regard us as being successful yet, but we have finally, it seems have have had the full recognition um of the need to do better, not only internally in the field in terms of, uh, and quite honestly, still a lot of folks in emergency management are are white guys, um, you know. And but we need to diversify because we need to have a better understanding and representation of the communities that that we're supporting, and 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 that's something that that we're not doing as well. Um, again, we we have some motivation in that direction, but we do have a long way to go.
0: It sounds like you're saying we're moving in the right direction, but but still have some distance to cover to kind of get where we need to be.
1: Quite a bit, quite a bit.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Um, Tim, could you explain too, from my understanding, there are these different levels. Like you had mentioned in the beginning telling people, you know what FEMA does, that's the kind of work I do, but this not only happens at the federal level, it also happens at the state level, at local levels. I mean, how do those emergency management partners kind of work together? And is that this do we see the same type of collaborations today as we would have say 20, 30 years ago, or is it different?
1: It's different. It's uh, stronger in a lot of ways. Um, you, you know, I, obviously, after something like 9-11, uh, you know, one of the big failures of, of 9-11, um, there's a, a big focus on the intelligence failure because there were different aspects of the intelligence community that had information, but none of them had the full picture. Had they shared that information with each other, uh, they probably wouldn't have had the full picture, but they would have gotten the gist of it. You know, it, it probably would have been 800 pieces out of a thousand piece puzzle. Um, but they might you know, have connected
0: some dots and said, hang on, something's something's in motion here.
1: Exactly, exactly. Um, and, you know, so we, we had that. There are some other gaps in preparedness um, in terms of even beyond Intel agencies, but even just simply response agencies and emergency management agencies and all these needing to work together, needing to, to connect better, um, working with a lot of non-traditional types of agencies, you know, human services agencies and, 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 and organizations and that kind of thing sure. that has definitely improved through the years. Um, obviously we, you know, have been pushed by, uh, you know, every once in a while we get whacked in the head with something like a, a big hurricane, uh, you know, sure. wildfires, uh, a, a pandemic, um, which is obviously, you know, demonstrated and reinforced this need and and we learn. Uh, the, the big thing is that we obviously need to embrace that learning and 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 make positive change based on what we've learned. And again, a little bit of a frustration because uh, just like so many organizations and disciplines, we have the, well, but we've always done it this way. Yeah. Well, okay, there's, there's some good parts of that, but there's also some really bad stuff um, or 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 less effective things that we need to be able to move beyond
0: I know Brandy Mai talks a lot about that. We say, well, this is a way it's always been done right and, and yes. that's in so many professions you just do the way it's always been done right so yeah. um, we really need to have critical thinking and and address a lot of these things and say, well, is that the most effective way to do it right
1: right absolutely
0: tim i want to ask you you know now that we're talking about collaboration and all these different levels of government and organizations do we see a lot of like nonprofits getting involved in the mix say say post hurricane right so it's it's overwhelming how many needs there are on the ground is there a role for say like you know a a volunteer group or a church group or things like that to be kind of connected in with the the recovery and response tons um quite honestly there always has
1: been um but through the years that has been amplified. a um, couple of reasons. One, I think that the the need for certain things to be met, uh, you know, when we we basically better recognition of some of the gaps that are out there, um, and 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 the need to fix those and recognizing that government can't fix everything. We don't have all the resources to do things. We have a bureaucracy that in some cases prevents us from doing things. Um, so that's one thing that's kind of helped to amplify this. Um, and the other one, um, another big thing, and, and and not to knock them as an organization. I've always been a big fan of the Red Cross. And obviously I mentioned my my roots of this ultimately go back to the Red Cross. Sure. Um, but over the last uh, Twenty years or so, the Red Cross has really changed as an organization um, in a lot of areas of the country. Not everywhere, but a lot of areas of the country, we've seen their capability and capacity severely decrease, um, especially capacity. They have uh, their their paid staff is decreasing while their footprint of their chapters is is increasing. I mean, uh, so they're for- they're
0: stretched pretty thin.
1: Oh, they they are. They are. For, I mean, for for example, you know, there used to be numerous chapters in, say, the state of Vermont. Now, the state of Vermont and New Hampshire are all one giant Red Cross chapter. Oh, um, interesting. How do you yeah.
0: explain the decrease in their staff and, and funding and things like that?
1: Uh, a lot of it does come down to funding. Um you know, less, uh, probably less donations overall. I think probably uh, in, in some cases, you know, decreased interest in in, in supporting them. Um, and some of it is generational, some of it's economic, some of it's, you know, there, there's a, a ton of different, sure uh, uh, you know, things that kind of come together with that. So with that gap that has been created in response, because the Red Cross for so long was just always so strongly relied on. I mean, they literally sure. were written in plans that, oh, sheltering? Call the Red Cross. So and they were written like, in
0: government res- um, emergency preparedness plans.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, uh, and and and, <laughs> and and written in the wrong way. There are a lot of jurisdictions where truly their sheltering plan was to call the Red Cross. Um, Interesting. The, like the, the, we'll just rely the juris- on them. <laughs> yeah, the jurisdiction wouldn't even have their own actual plan. Um, they just kind of uh, uh, um, erroneously gave up responsibility. I say, even though the red cross, you know, was a great agency to do it. And and in a lot of cases they still are, but even they've recognized that they need a lot of partners. So they do rely on a lot of local community groups, church groups, that kind of thing. We've also seen some elevation of, um, other, uh, nonprofits and volunteer groups that have, um, filled in some gaps. Not only those kind of left by the, by, by this change in the red cross, but also, gaps that we have recognized more broadly, um, in, in, in disasters. So entities like world central kitchen, uh, you know, who will go out there and, you know, their whole mission is to get food to victims and responders. Sure. And, sure. you know, once you have food, you can basically do anything. Yeah. Um, right. And, you know, they, they are used to working in clandestine areas all around the world, uh, you know, they showed up in Buffalo for the snowstorm. They sure. have an ongoing operation in Ukraine. I mean, they're they're everywhere doing this stuff. Um, you know, they they do an incredible job. There's there's some other, you know, similar, uh, there's like a barbecue relief uh organization yeah. and and they just show up with big barbecue pits, which is fantastic. Um you know, so you've you've uh, yeah, there, there's just there's a lot of organizations that have come together to to fill that gap.
0: You're right in a disaster zone. Once you have food and water, though, it's like, OK, now we can get recovery going. Now we can get linemen yeah. up there bringing the electricity back. Right. You don't have exactly. food or water. You're really dead. in you're really dead in the water. You know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um,
0: Tim, I wanted to ask you, I was looking at your biography. You have a lot of experience both with large event planning and response to natural disasters. So these on some level are very different things. One being like with a large, let's say there's a, major concert that's going to happen in a college football stadium. We know the date. We know the time. We know 80,000 tickets were sold compared to a tornado outbreak. It's not telegraphed like that. There's a lot of uncertainty. So on some level, those two types of things seem very different. But I'm wondering if if there's a lot of similarities, too. I mean, how do you compare response to a natural disaster versus large event planning in response to what could go wrong there?
1: We we learn. From those things both ways. It's it's it, it's a two-way street. There are things when we do event planning that we learn from disasters, because in disasters, we obviously learn to deal with the unanticipated things. So you can have a large event, you're going to have 80,000 people and inevitably things are going to go wrong. It can be very well planned and you can make sure you have the right infrastructure to to deal with things, but something can go wrong. You could have a uh, foodborne illness, uh, uh, type of thing. You could have a fire, you can have a stampede, you can have all sorts of things Sure. and you need to have the plans in place to be able to deal with those. The great thing about planned events is that, as you said, Hal, there's a lot of notice, uh, we can take the time to assess the threats and the hazards. We can look at sure. the environment. We can look at the, 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 the kind of the demographics of the folks who, who might be attending, um and you know we know that like hey there's there's certain crowds that are going to flock to certain things um you know we've we've i've dealt with woodstock i was i was a a public safety planner for woodstock 99 uh just before that we had a concert from fish uh that that was uh here nearby in, in upstate new york and you look at the demographics of the attendees you look at the uh the substances that they tend to bring with them and, and, and vibe during these events. And, you know, so you have to be realistic about this stuff and, and, and figure out, you know, try to, try to ascertain what it is that you're going to deal with. um, And, and how similarly, when you have, you know, large, uh, large disasters, whether it's from a natural hazard or otherwise, you there are things that you can count on. So just like doing a planned event, there are certain assumptions that we can make. And most of the time we're pretty accurate with those assumptions, especially if we've, you know, we're fairly well-practiced with it. We've dealt with tornadoes before we've dealt with floods before. Sure. We know, you know, most areas know, at least in generalities what's needed and how they have to respond to them. But what we don't know is when it's going to happen, where it's going to happen, how it's going to happen, what the magnitude and intensity is. Those are all things that we now have to kind of knee-jerk react to. Yeah, but right. if we have good plans in place, we we can do better with it.
0: It sounds like you're saying with the events, I mean, we know the date, time and location, but we're, it sounds like you're trying to kind of paint a picture ahead of time. Who's going to be there? What kind of people, how many people, where are they going to park? Where are they going to go to restrooms? Right. You're trying to get kind of a a landscape before it happens. Mm -hmm. But the the advantage is again, we, we know the date and time. It's, it's not like just 80,000 people usually show up, you know, Overnight. Um, really interesting comparison there between those two. And I could see how knowledge of one kind of helps response to another. Absolutely. Tim, looking at your fabulous blog at timothyryker.com, man, there's a lot of content there. I was really impressed by the, the scope of work you've done on that blog for years and the depth that you really bring to these different insights. Uh, you obviously have the the moniker there the contrarian emergency manager we touched on that a little bit before but i mean where did you get that name how long have you had that name um, really where does that come from so
1: i i wish it was a cool story that like someone dubbed me the contrarian emergency manager <laughs> like but at, the, at woodstock
0: they said hey yeah. come up here you're gonna be the contrarian emergency <laughs> manager we
1: deem you yeah yeah no no so sadly it wasn't anything like that um I you know through the years I kind of looked at the the tone of a lot of the the blog posts that I had put out there and a lot of it had been around pushing back on accepted practices pushing back on bad planning pushing back on bad reports that you know FEMA releases every year pushing back on standards that aren't applied well or erroneous standards that we just kind of like as a profession just kind of seem to 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 shrug and accept. Okay. Um so between that and between um being a fan of a um someone who is kind of a consultant to consultants. Sure. Um and he oftentimes uses uh the term contrarian to kind of explain his approach to things when it comes to consulting and, and, you know, now having been, as I've mentioned, a consultant for, for 12 years, um, you know, really always kind of looking at better ways to, to do things and to improve. And there's, yeah, there's, you know, there's self-help books for everything. There's self-help sure, books sure. for emergency managers, there's self-help books for consultants. I'm sure there's self-help books for, for weather folks as well, um, you know, to, to some extent. And uh, yeah, so contrarianism and, and, not in in a means of of being uh you know a a, a roadblock to things not in terms of being an impediment okay. to progress but in terms of you know calling out practices that have been going on for a long time that are not great but people just seem to kind of go with and 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 I don't understand that so, so pushing back
0: on that status quo and kind of questioning yeah. like wait why are we doing it this way
1: yeah Exactly. And, and I don't necessarily have all the answers. A lot of my blogs will ask a lot of questions. They will point things out and I'll say, hey, I, I don't necessarily know a better way to do this or I'm not recommending a better way to do it. But I think the way that it's being done is poor and there's a lot of room for improvement. You and, know, my
0: favorite teachers and educators. It's not like they just stand up there giving you a monologue, right? They facilitate. They ask questions. They facilitate yeah. discussion. That's really what you're doing by asking these questions, sharing your insights. Um, you're really facilitating an online discussion in the profession.
1: That's a, that's what I try to do. And 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 you know, I'm 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 I've been told I've been you know, my name is whispered in the halls of FEMA, uh, and you know, various organizations and, and 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 that kind of thing. You know, for for the better or the worse of it. Um, and I'll, I'll get phone calls from certain people that, uh, you know, don't want to put anything in writing because it might get them in trouble with their employer. Um, but I've, I've, I've gotten some phone calls from some pretty prominent individuals in the business, uh, who've said, Hey, yeah, we, we definitely agree with you and we want to make change. And you know, how, how can we do that? What, what, what can we do better? Um, or Hey, you know, just to let you know, there's a lot of people here who support the things that you're writing about, uh you know, but we're, we're stuck in this bureaucracy, this bureaucracy, we're stuck in this legacy of the way we've always done things. So, um, but yeah, it, it, it at sure. least it gets the conversations going and some of them have been great. You know, uh, some other things I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm sure some people see my stuff and read it and kind of roll their eyes and say, Oh, this guy's just complaining about something else. Um, But I also try not to make it negative. I I, I try to sure. put a positive spin on it. I mean, we are, there, there's an, obviously a seriousness to this, um, and in a way that a, a colleague put this to me a few years ago that stuck with me is that, you know, first responders save lives, emergency managers save communities, and that's that's serious work. Both of them are obviously sure, really sure. serious work, and and we need to buckle down and do better in in a lot of these areas. And that's not to say that you know as a profession we're doing poorly because we're not. We there's some incredible people doing amazing work out there for communities um, and just, I mean, mind blowing stuff and we really need to, to grab onto that, um, you know, that momentum and those best practices and and keep things moving forward.
0: Sure. Tim, you know, I have to say in relation to your engagement in your profession, one of your colleagues, I won't tell you who, when I was preparing for this podcast, he or she called you an emergency management ninja in, in the best possible way. Just said, this guy is like in on everything and just doing amazing work, but uh, you've been called a ninja in a a very good way. So you're just, uh, I think you're engaging and getting people thinking and dialoguing. And that's, I, I think a huge, value to the profession. So keep up that good is, work. I'm going to be reading more of your blog posts for sure. Is, is,
1: is that Brandy that called me a ninja? <laughs> it,
0: it may have been. It, it, may have, <laughs> it, it, it just may have been. Everyone, again, you can check out this blog post. It's it's at Timothy Riker. That's Timothy, R-I-E-C-K-E-R.com. Um, there are a lot of thought-provoking blog posts. I was able to share that with my colleagues as I prepared for this podcast. And actually, one of my friends with the National Weather Service, he has a background doing a lot with response to different disasters. He's worked in different different federal agencies. And so he had some questions. Here's a question that he had for you. Uh, really, how has the quality of emergency management changed or improved with the advent of the emergency management accreditation program? That's something we saw that you talked about in in your blogs there. How has that affected the, the state of emergency management?
1: Uh, standards are a fantastic thing. And I think anytime that we can establish floor for everyone to at least rise to um and to be the foundation of of what we do i think that's great um the emergency management accreditation program emap uh is is fantastic with that and and it's been around um been around for a while somewhere around 2000 or so or actually before that i think is when they started to kind of put some things together um i was part of new york state's uh, EMAP compliance team, you know, panicking throughout the agency to make sure that we had every process and procedure documented. And this is sure. just in response. This is every aspect of emergency management, everything we do before, during and after a disaster. Um, and, and the big thing about standards and accreditations and compliance is to make sure that you have everything documented. So many agencies and organizations do the things, but they don't have things documented. Um, And documented uh, documentation obviously helps to make sure Sure. that we're doing things consistently and that we're not missing anything and and, and all that. So, uh, a lot of that stuff helps. And, and, and EMAP, so much of EMAP is based on uh, what was until recently NFPA 1600, uh, which is the standard on emergency management and and, uh, crisis management and continuity. Um, And 1600 has uh, very recently been folded into um a new standard uh nfpa 1616 which has been combined with some other related emergency management standards um and kind of one of you know my career benchmarks was actually being on the team uh to do that i I was uh, uh as a subject matter expert with the nfpa to pull together the the 1600 component of 1616 and in the process doing some revisions and streamlining and all that kind of stuff. And that was, um, that, that was awesome. It's, uh, these things are not exciting reads. Yeah. Uh, you'll probably fall asleep. You'll have like super long blinks, you know, kind of thing and nodding off, but, um, you know, really important to a lot of the things that, that we do and, and good standards like that, uh, you know, whether it's sixteen sixteen EMAP, whatever. Um, again, a lot of common roots that, that, that they have, they tell you what needs to be done, but not how.
0: Okay, I got you. Which I think
1: is great because that leaves room for progress. You know, yeah. they'll say, hey, you need to track whatever information this is. Okay, that's great. They don't tell you how to do it. Sure. Some people might be doing it on a spreadsheet. Some people might have developed a database. Someone might be using a an off-the-shelf third-party thing that was developed. Someone might be coming up with something completely different uh, for it. And and. That's what helps these standards be scalable um, mm-hmm. to meet needs because not every emergency management office has dozens of people. Most of them have one. Um, and that one person, especially at the local level, usually has numerous other hats that they're wearing. Um, so, you know, the people can do and what what works for them.
0: Yeah. And when you provide the guideline of what needs to be done, but don't spell out every detail of how it needs to be done, that leaves room for innovation, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So EMAP, e- 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 I mean, really to answer the question, EMAP has really um, elevated that that foundational standard for emergency management. And, and not everyone is accredited. It is something that does take a lot of work to get into, uh, to, to, to make happen, but um, it, it really does help in, in a lot of ways. I've, I've seen a lot of professionalism, um, uh, pro, no, professionalization, uh, sure. I think is the right word, of of a lot of practices in emergency management because of people striving to adhere to that standard
0: well and tim this seems to address what you talked about early on one of the one of the dangers of just being too broad and too general right if you have specific standards and detail into this Mm -hmm. all of a sudden you're not just saying well you know we we told everyone to respond to it like you know you're providing some detail and some standards to it right 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 so i think that's a, that's super important tim something that stood out to me when i was thinking about this podcast it's with emergency management you're doing your best like you said to save communities so you're trying to prevent loss of life you're trying to prevent loss of property it's really difficult sometimes to measure and quantify something we've prevented Right you mentioned 911 i mean imagine if 911 was prevented would we really appreciate the scope of what we were saved from so the question i had for you you know when emergency management professionals have the foresight the resources the manpower to get out in front of a potential disaster and prevent it from happening how is this quantified on the back end? Is the scope of lives saves and, and, and losses prevented ever fully grasped by society? And does this lead to more funding and resources being allocated for more great work, right? Do we say, hey, this is amazing. They saved hundreds of lives. They saved maybe billions in, in, in uh, dollars lost. This is amazing. Let's keep funding this great work. Or is it kind of sometimes lost in, in, the, in the mix?
1: Hell, that's the hardest question anyone has ever asked me.
0: <laughs> I know, and I kind of um, went on there. I asked you a couple <laughs> different points of it, but I, it's, it, it's it is It's such
1: strange. a hard question. Um, Maybe I, start I, with, like,
0: I, how do we quantify what what has been prevented?
1: Yeah, and, and and that's exactly, I think, the root of the challenge is trying to figure out what that return on investment is, if you will, uh, to basically bring it to, like, a fundamental business term. Um And so often it's, it's where, where we really try to measure that return on investment isn't hazard mitigation. So the things that we do to either lessen the impact of a disaster, um, or, or all out prevent that disaster from, from happening. Um, so like, you know, stronger building construction for to, to make buildings earthquake, uh, sure. Uh, you know, stronger against earthquakes. Um, there's a bunch of things we can do for flood protection to, you know, better culverts and um, retention ponds and that kind of stuff, or even elevating homes and, and, and other structures. There are some of those things that we do that do become super apparent. And it's typically the things that when the disaster still occurs and we can take a look at it. And so like, you know, say we have that hurricane come in on the Jersey shore And we've just did this, you know, decades long um, program of elevating homes and other structures on the shore. So you see that storm surge come in, you see feet of water. Sure. And hey, there's some of the structures people simply refuse to elevate. Their structures are destroyed or at the very best, completely swamped. Sure. Where the elevated ones are, you know, minimal damage or, you know, largely untouched. So you can see that evidence right there. And I think when something is visual, um, when we can you know take pictures of it right then and there, we can bring our elected officials out to see the stuff, when we can get it out to the media, it, it tells a story and people can ap- actually compare, you know, apples to apples with it. Yeah. Um, when we have prevented a disaster, that's the challenge. That's when all of us will celebrate in the back room on the sure. assumption that we're pretty sure that the work that we did resulted in preventing that disaster from occurring or severely reduce the magnitude of it. But it may be very hard to overtly prove. Sure, sure. Um, and. Like you said, you know, like with your 9-11 example, if planes didn't hit buildings. Wow, that's a huge success. That's a massive success. We saved literally thousands of lives, billions of dollars. I, what an absolutely amazing thing if we prevented that. Who who would have known? Would, would there still have been so much money afterwards to go into terrorism prevention and, and counterterrorism programs and all the other stuff that we had? Probably not, because people would have said, oh, Clearly not that big of a deal. We stopped it. We're doing fine. It wasn't a story. Let's move on, right? Yeah. Um, So it's a big catch-22. And obviously, we don't want disasters to happen. But when they do, and it's inevitable that they do, we do want to capture that as best as we possibly can, capture the imagery, capture the data, tell a story, um, and use that to build awareness, Sure. use that to support good decision-making, use that to support uh, increased grant funding, um, and, and, and good, you know, out of the box thinking that's going to be progressive. That's going to help us do better the next time around. Um, so we really have to capitalize on it. And, and it almost seems like this negative, like ambulance chaser kind of, of sure. attitude to have, but the disasters are going to happen and we have to capitalize on the fact on, on when they do happen so we can figure out how to do things better. Um, yeah, well, we, we, we
0: want to fund good work that is making a difference. Right. And yes. so sometimes the difference you're making is lives were saved, property damage was reduced. And so mm-hmm. I think to quantify that, that, that does make sense, right? You can yeah. justify the work that you've been doing. It's, I mean, so much of it,
1: Hal, and, and, you know, you're, you're a, a weather and disaster scientist, climate change, climate change is such a huge struggle. With people because we can't physically show them we can't compare well if we weren't in this thing called called climate change is that really what's making does it is that really what's making weather different sure um or worse in some areas you know some people are gonna well we can attribute a lot of things in climate change to the snowstorm out in buffalo Now, of course, the misnomer, because we sold climate change really, really poorly a couple decades ago by calling it global warming, and that kind of screwed us over because now you have people who will roll their eyes and say, oh, yeah, well, there's your global warming and climate change. We just got, you know, seven feet of snow in the city of Buffalo. But they're not there actually are things that do contribute and connect to that from climate change but it's such an intangible thing to get people to, to to really connect.
0: Tim, so you gave the example of a hurricane coming into the Jersey Shore. Unfortunately, if that happened, it would be a devastating thing. The National Hurricane Center would have a report showing the meteorological conditions. What were the storm track? What were the winds? What was the flood level? And then they would also share in their report the impacts, losses mm-hmm. of lives, economic losses. Do, so do you know of anyone professionally that, that would go into an event A place like that and and actually write up in a report like how many houses were elevated how many houses were saved is that is that documented anywhere professionally that someone would say yes there was three billion dollars in losses but there would have been six billion if it wasn't for this program in the state of new jersey or something like that consistently
1: no um and that's also one of the problems that we have is that there there really isn't a lot of that um I will say that and, and, you know, a a big shout out to the academic side of emergency management, because there are a lot of academic programs, um, especially, you know, higher level research programs, that kind of stuff that uh, will secure grant funding to go out and do that kind of disaster research, Okay, literally in the immediate aftermath of a disaster. Um, So, you know, while, you know, within days of a disaster occurring, they're sending researchers and grad students and all that kind of stuff out there to do a lot of this data collection. Um, There is some of it that FEMA will capture as part of their processes um, within uh, the public assistance and individual assistance grant programs and doing their, their uh, uh, disaster assessments and that kind of stuff. But in a lot of cases, it's not quantified in the way that it needs to be. I mean, FEMA's assessments um unless they are unless they do have something that is specifically geared toward um, measuring mitigation impacts, they're typically just out there to figure out what is damaged and to what extent they're not sure. looking at what survived. They're looking to see what's damaged. so they're they're kind of turning a blind eye to that structure that's still standing because that one over there is demolished. Um, you know,
0: and maybe there's a justification for doing both, really. Right? Yes. Yeah.
1: There, there there absolutely should be. And there there is there has been for the last few years some movements um, to uh build the national disaster. I believe it's the national disaster safety board. Okay. Um so something very similar to like the NTSB, um, where you know they look at transportation incidents like you know, the sure. one uh, the big uh, uh, train derailment out, out in Ohio. Uh, where there would be this development of this uh, disaster office that would operate independently, so they wouldn't be part of FEMA, and they would go out there and they would do studies on disasters and on the different impacts of disasters and write after action reports and provide a lot of other data that can help um, that can help us to improve.
0: Yeah, and, that makes to, a lot of to sense to
1: identify, you know, what 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 worked and what didn't work. So there there has been some push behind that. Um it's just, you know, slow bureaucratic uh legal stuff with with our elected officials.
0: Tim, you mentioned academics. There's a growing number of colleges and universities offering cor- coursework and degree programs in emergency management now. Uh, a lot of it tends to be by nature theoretical, right? It's it's book learning, it's a lot of reading. Mm-hmm is there a dichotomy between that and actually getting boots on the ground and experiencing a disaster? I mean, for for our students listening, for our young professionals, uh, is there a gap between those two? Like do these programs, do they, do they really help a student learn how to respond to this or or is there a kind of a difference between the academic side and the, the actual response side? So
1: theory is important. It's, it's important for us to know, you know, the, the how and why of things. Um, and I'm sure, you know, as a, as a a weather scientist, you can, you can appreciate that. Um, and research is obviously important to help substantiate and uncover new things and, and to, to really help figure out a lot of, of, of stuff, uh, you know, current practices and what some potential other practices can be. Uh, but that said, yeah, a lot of, uh, Emergency management academic programs that we see out there are theory based. Um, So I actually and I'm not sure if you knew this. uh, I actually started a uh, an emergency management certificate program um, at a community college here. It's fully online. So anyone in the world can take it. Um, And our big push when we developed it was we need to flip that script a little bit. Um, Again, theory is still important because we need to build a foundation, but we're going to do a lot about practice. Um, we're really going to tell people not just uh, why they're doing something, but how to actually do it.
0: Tim, Very I did important. not realize that you helped develop that certificate program. What's yeah. the name of the community college? How can people find this? Uh, it's uh, Herkimer, County, Herkimer County Community
1: College. Uh, it's okay. part of the State University of New York system. Um, and yeah, so it's a uh, it's a fully online certificate program um, that we built from the ground up. There are uh, we do have a couple of of non emergency management courses uh, in there, like sociology. Sure, I'm a big believer that what we do in emergency management is actually rooted in sociology. Excuse me. So obviously, there is a little bit more theory in there. Um, and then we also have a requirement for some for Earth sciences. So uh, people can can either take a meteorological course, or they can take yeah. a um, a physical Earth science course, uh, like geology or something like that, just to give, you know, little perspective on, on what some of these hazards are and where things come from. Uh, but yeah, the, the rest of the program, um, you know, we, we cover uh, things before, during, and after. We have a risk communications course. We have a a sure. uh, business continuity course that's in there. And uh, yeah, and they're all online.
0: Yeah, I love that you put it online. I know a lot of our listeners are going to want to check that out. And it's pretty cool that it's accessible to everybody.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please do check it out. Uh, it's, you know, uh, rolling enrollment. So, um, you know, we have, uh, uh, it, it's basically built if you are dedicated to do it in a full-time capacity sure Uh, it's built to be done in two terms so one one no that's
0: awesome no fantastic i I love that perspective and like you said it's accessible to, to anybody that wants to do that tim i want to land the plane here with one last question for you it's the magic wand question if you had a magic wand to change one thing in your profession what would it be
1: better plans Nice. People need to write better plans. And, and I, and here's the caveat on the magic wand. I don't want the better plans to just magically appear. I want people to, I want the magic wand to motivate people to build plans the right way, because there's also a huge benefit to that collaborative engagement of building a plan.
0: I was just going to so, use the word collaborative. You, you brought that up several times in this podcast, people working together, bringing all the stakeholders to the table. It sounds like yeah, it's more yeah. than just putting a, a 30 page uh, piece of paper on a desk and say the plan's done. It's a lot of it's the process of how you got there, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's when people put in the work, they get a better product out of it. And, and it's, you know, sometimes a challenge being a consultant because I, you know, I get hired to write disaster plans. Um, well, sure, I can, you know, put some stuff together and I can mail you a three inch binder that's going to have your plan in it. But you know what? It's not your plan. It's my plan that I wrote for you. So right. you without
0: in that process. Yeah.
1: Right. So without their engagement, without their local knowledge, um, without them establishing what the priorities are, you know, yeah, I, I have a lot of experience doing these things. I can leverage a lot of that experience. I can facilitate that process. But the ownership of it has to be theirs. Um, they they have to put in the work. Um, well, I, I can I can type. I I, I tell folks eighty five percent of my job is typing. Um, but you know they 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 need to they need to give me the content.
0: Yeah. And I'm not an emergency manager, but from my friends in the field, it seems like the term relationships comes up a lot too, you know, that again, time. when the response hits, you want to fall back on those relationships that were developed at the workshops and when it was sunny and 75 degrees, right? Because now there's yeah. a flood and now is not the time to fo- to try to foster new relationships, right? Those should already be there.
1: Exactly. I, I want to have already known you, Hal. So if we're both going to show up on a disaster scene together I don't want to be meeting you for the first time and trying to figure out who you are, who you work for, what your agency's priorities are, you know, what you bring to the table, what your capabilities are, that kind of stuff. If I know that stuff ahead of time, um, if if both of us know that stuff ahead of time, then we're already several steps ahead.
0: That's right. We have the relationship. We have the trust, right? When when you give perspective on something, I know this guy, we've been in workshops together for a decade. I can trust what he says, right? Yep. Tim, thank you so much. Your insights are so I, I find them refreshing and, uh you know, really hopeful. You know, you're providing a lot of resources out there. You're doing great work. You're helping educate our listeners here today. So how can our listeners find you if they want to connect with you? Are there professional workshops you go to every year? How can people find you online? How can they connect with you? Um, yeah. So a couple things I'll plug. Uh, LinkedIn is, is probably, you know, professionally
1: one of the easiest ways to find me. Uh, I'm actually on LinkedIn as uh, the contrarian emergency manager um, or, you know, you can go in there and search my name, but contrarian emergency manager, I think people can, can more easily remember uh, my business um, emergency preparedness solutions. The website's EPS uh that also has my blog in it as well. So people can find that from there. Um, And uh, I'm also, uh, as you mentioned in the introduction, um, Vice Chair for the International Public Safety
0: Association, IPSA. Tim, thank you so much for sharing these profound insights with us. The biggest take-home message for me in this podcast is that communities can best reduce their losses from extreme weather and natural disasters through better plans, but more important than the plans themselves is the path that communities take to get these plans. Tim shared about the benefits for communities who are actively involved in their own hazard mitigation planning and take a collaborative approach involving all stakeholders in the dialogue of developing these plans. This approach helps communities to have more ownership of these plans as opposed to hiring a consultant or a group of people to do all this work for them. This approach also ensures long-term benefits as well. I've noticed in my professional life that organizations and communities that foster change through relationships and growing a network of leaders are more secure long-term than those that rely on the efforts of one or two people. The future is uncertain. Sometimes leaders may resign, change jobs, move away, or even pass away. And I've noticed that organizations and communities that depend on one person for leadership often take a huge hit when we remove that leader as opposed to organizations and communities that have developed an extensive base of leaders who can continue the work once the leader is gone. So really interesting insights there. Tim, really appreciate you taking time to share with us. I think these are very thought-provoking topics that we discussed on the podcast. And again, it will relate to people in all areas of hazard mitigation. Thank you again to our listeners as well. Your support and interest in this podcast, sharing it with others. This is what has made us the number one podcast for natural disasters. Really appreciate your involvement. We try to bring you fresh content with each new podcast. Wanted to thank as well the Geotrek marketing team based in Mobile, Alabama. They do an amazing job of editing these podcasts and videos, adding adding a lot of uh, different editing to the sounds and the audio and disseminating these podcasts to reach a really broad audience. So special thanks to our team there as well. Well, everyone, thanks so much for tuning into this episode. Uh, We'll catch you on the next episode of the GeoTrek podcast.